Chapter Three, Part Two of Rocks and Their Origins by Grenville A. J. Cole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sandstones, Part Two. The Sand Grains of Sandstone. Sandstones are originally permeable by water, not because they possess a high percentage of pore space or porosity, but because the pores between the grains are large. Water can thus move easily by gravitation through the mass. The capillary rise or spread of water is greatest in materials of very fine grain, though in these it may be extremely slow. For the most effective rise of water against gravity by capillary pull, a large proportion of particles about 0.2 millimeters in diameter should be present. Sand grains, however, often measure 0.5 millimeters in diameter, and the fine mud or highly comminuted sand between the coarser matter is the cause of the spread of water through the mass when the supply comes from a subterranean water table. Rain, however, is of course readily absorbed. It disappears so rapidly on some barren sandstone areas, coated as they are by loose sandy soils, that vegetation cannot make a start, even where water is supplied. Daubry, Sorby, and others have studied the characters of sand grains, and it has been pointed out that agitated water buoys apart and carries forward by flotation grains with a diameter of 0.1 millimeter or less. Hence, coarser grains may become rounded like pebbles by friction on the bottom of a stream, but small ones remain angular throughout geological periods and even when transferred from one sandstone to another. When their surfaces have been cleaned by boiling in hydrochloric acid, the sharpness and irregularity of the quartz grains is strikingly apparent. Mingled with these grains, in addition to the minerals previously mentioned, many interesting crystals appear that have become concentrated in the natural washing processes. Minute colorless zircons and brown rutiles, derived from granite, have collected, owing to their high specific gravity, in certain sands. Magnetite and ilmenite may darken the mass. Monazite and thorite, which are sought after for their constituents cerium and thorium, become similarly selected in alluvial hollows, owing to their density of five. Whatever gathers thus in sands may become preserved in sandstones, and the study of thin sections of the latter under the microscope is fruitful in suggestions as to their origin. Some sandstones are remarkable for their highly rounded and almost spherical grains. J. A. Phillips compared these with the wind-worn grains of deserts, which assume similar forms and a considerable polish. Large quantities of sand are carried from arid lands into rivers, into lakes, or into the sea, and hence well-rounded grains in bedded rocks, and even in marine sandstones, may have had a desert origin. J. W. Judd, when examining the deposits of Lower Egypt for the Royal Society, commented on the extreme freshness of the felspathic particles in sands accumulating in rainless areas, and recent observations on the soils of semi-arid districts show their comparative poverty in clay. Enough has been said to indicate the variety of geographical considerations that may arise from the examination of beds of sandstone. The grains often prove, especially in the coarser types, to be fragments of rocks rather than isolated minerals, and thus furnish a picture of the materials that form the surface exposed to denudation. The sandstones of finest grain may be found in beds deposited almost on the limits of sedimentation from the land, where they are interlocked with material of truly pelagic origin. Marine muds often contain a high percentage of comminuted quartz, and the study of shales and slates of ancient days shows how this almost indestructible mineral 
finds its way into beds that might easily be classified as clays. Some characters of sandstone. Earth stresses and shrinkage give rise to joints in sandstone, which may not be so clean and sheer as those in limestone, but which affect even the softer forms. Cemented sand dunes of modern date tend to break away along vertical planes. Firmer sandstones give rise to stepped tablelands and edges, and the resistance of many types to atmospheric decay renders their stratified structure strongly apparent. Small intervals in the process of deposition, or slight changes in the coarseness of the sand brought down by currents, give rise to laminated and flaggy types. Where a broad shore has been exposed between tide marks, the drying and compacting of the surface before the next layer is laid down enables the latter to take a mold of the inequalities of that below. Ripple marks, sun cracks, rain prints, and the footmarks of animals are often preserved in this manner. Where the shore is subsiding, they may persist through hundreds of feet of strata. Naturally, the best examples of these casts and of the original structure in the underlying bed occur where a little mud has been laid down over the sandy flat. Clay by itself, if damp, does not retain the impression sufficiently long, and when once thoroughly dried, it crumbles when the next water overflows it. But a foundation of firm sand with a thin mud layer on its surface, as may be recognized in some Triassic deposits, furnishes excellent records of local weather or of the movements of errant animals. On the flat shores of lakes in a semi-arid climate, the water may retreat for miles and return perhaps months afterwards, when rains in the hills have given a new burden of detritus. Under such conditions, broad sun-cracked flats may be preserved, with perhaps some plant remains between successive layers. The castings and tracks of worms, and the tubes of boring species, which are sometimes infilled by sand of a different color, are common in sandstones of all ages. Silicious Conglomerates The deposits of wave-swept beaches leave us conglomerates formed of various types of pebbles among which quartz rock and quartzite naturally predominate. In some cases the pebbles are readily formed when they reach their resting place. They come rolling out from lateral torrents into the quieter waters of a main valley, as may be seen in summer in the broad pebble banks of the north Italian streams. Thence they are washed by occasional floods into the great confluent deltas that constitute the upper part of an alluvial plain, or into lake basins where they promptly settle along the shore but few such pebbles, except from pre-existing conglomerates or gravels on the shoreline, actually reach the sea. The rolled stones upon sea beaches are mostly the products of marine action on the spot. While the fine sand grains go seaward, almost unharmed, the detrital stones, offering far less surface in proportion to their mass, strike on their neighbors as every wave shifts them on the beach, and soon assume a rounded form. The conglomerates ultimately consolidated may reveal stratification only by the general arrangement of their pebbles. These can rarely be spheres, since they are not as a rule turned over, but are pushed this way and that until they acquire a flat, ellipsoidal shape. They lie with their flatter sides in planes parallel to one another. Generally, however, alternations of coarser and finer beds mark out the stratification even in conglomerates. The sand of deserts include abundant stones and blocks of rock, and the loose material becomes, moreover, sifted by the wind. True desert sands may accumulate at one point. The very finest loamy material may be carried away still farther to form fields of fertile loss. And a rock desert, formed of stones resting on bare surfaces, 
may remain in large areas of the arid region. The loose stones here assume a characteristic shape, and have been known under the German name of Dreikanter. They are fairly flat below, and are cut away above by the drifting sand into a form resembling a gable roof dipping at both ends. Their surfaces are characteristically etched. Dry canter have been found in beds that were formerly ascribed to deposition on the shores of lakes, and it must now be borne in mind that continued attrition by drifting sand affects mixed detritus on a land surface much as the wash of waters does upon a beach. Certain materials are cut away more rapidly than others, and the residue assumes a more and more quartzose type. In this way, sandstones and conglomerates, in which fragments of quartzite and vein quartz predominate over other constituents, may arise as aeolian beaches on dry land. Sandstone and the Land Surface The permeability of sandstone has already been referred to. The surface offered by it is typically dry, and the soil, consisting mainly of grains of siliceous sand, can neither retain the rain that falls nor draw up water from below. The idea that trees can flourish on sandstone soils because they require nothing from the soil itself is, of course, erroneous. They depend to a large extent upon the materials set free by the decay of certain grains, or of the cement of the underlying sandstone. In proportion as the sandstone is impure, that is, the more its constituents deviate from pure quartz, the more chance there is that it will provide a fertile soil. On the whole, however, areas of siliceous conglomerate and sandstone are given over, even in temperate climates, to forest and heather. Where the sandstone is still in the sand-rock state, bare patches are likely to appear, even in the heath that has grown across it, and from these the wind carries away sifting sands. Everyone familiar with the carboniferous areas of the English Midlands will realize the influence of the hard grit and sandstone in forming edges across the country. The contrast between these escarpments and the slopes of crumbling shale that often underlie them gives diversity to the scenery of Yordale and the Peak. The more yielding sandstones of Cretaceous age, round about the Weald, or at the foot of the Chiltern Hills near Woburn, form rounded hills mostly clad with woods of coniferous trees. In Surrey, unpaved cart tracks used for centuries have cut gullies in the unconsolidated folkstone sands. The underlying height beds, however, stand out between Regate and Guildford as a bold escarpment, and it is interesting to reflect that this fine feature of southeastern England is probably due to the chert which the beds contain. The local growth of siliceous sponges in a lower Cretaceous sea enables Leith Hill in our days to dominate even the arch of Ashdown Forest, where another untilled sandstone area rises in the center of the Weald. The sands of Bagshot Heath and numerous similar rocks in the Paris Basin show how impossible it is to cultivate such strata, even near the best of markets. The flint gravels that cover much of the upland in the New Forest may also be borne in mind, as presenting the worst features of highly siliceous lands. In a semi-arid climate, or one with only seasonal rains, the processes by which sandstone begets sandstone tend to develop desert wastes. The soils produced by weathering do not cake together, and are carried away by wind during the drier months. The bare rock appears over broad surfaces, just as it does in storm-swept limestone areas, and any hollow where shelter is afforded tends to become filled with sand. The hummocky and extremely irregular surface of some of our Silurian areas, 
such as the parts of the southern uplands of Scotland and the hard-won farmlands of Down and eastern Monaghan, is due to the presence of resisting sandstones among the shales. These sandstones, passing into true grits, are repeatedly folded, and their upturned edges have resisted even the passage of glacier ice. They jut out along the crests of ridges, and even the smaller beds furnish angular fragments to the soils. Far wilder scenery is formed by the more continuous sandstone masses of the harlech beds in western Wales, which are grits so firmly cemented that the rock breaks across the quartz grains. Much of the old red sandstone is of equally hard quality. Its purple or grey conglomerates, the pebbles of which are quartzite in a quartz cement, form bare and rugged masses in the great glen southwest of Inverness, and are responsible in Kerry for some of the wildest rock scenery in the British Isles. Variations in coarseness allow of the development of a marked stratification on the weathered mountainsides, and differential erosion of the beds has taken place where ice has pressed against them. Even on precipices, grassy ledges may occur, marking bands of sandstone or shale in the conglomeratic mass. The red sandstones and conglomerates that form huge outstanding bluffs from Applecross to the north of Sutherland represent the denudation of a pre-Cambrian mountain region. These Torridon sandstones cover a very irregular surface of old Nice, with which their almost level strata are in striking contrast. P. Lake has compared them with the deposits styled Dasht in Baluchistan and Afghanistan, which similarly fill up valleys and cover hills as products of extensive and rapid denudation. There is much, indeed, to suggest that the Torridon sandstone, some 10,000 feet in thickness, was accumulated in a dry country on a continental surface, with the aid of floods during occasional rainy seasons. Quartzite, which fractures into small angular blocks under earth stresses, yields an intractable surface of bare rock and taluses of shifting stones. The latter sometimes crumble down into white sand, which provides some basis for the growth of heather. The numerous joints, independent of the bedding planes, cause the rock to break up almost equally on any exposed slope, and the crests of quartzite hills become typically converted into cones. Viewed from a distance, the white taluses, streaming down evenly from the crest, resemble caps of snow. The absence of soil and the smoothness of weathered surfaces render quartzite mountains hard to climb. The uniform cementing of the rock leaves the bedding with little influence on the surface features, and rock ledges and shelves are rare. The traveller ascends over taluses of angular and obstinate blocks towards slippery and inhospitable domes but the wildness of the scenery will be his sure reward. It is of interest to reflect that the material of these bold outstanding mountains may in certain cases have originated, in all its hardness, in the levels of a sun-parched plain. End of chapter 3